0: You're listening to Answering Difficult Questions Biblically, a Sunday school series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. First question this morning is, was Judas capable of being saved? Was Judas capable of being saved? And the question is asked because we understand that God's plan is from eternity past to eternity future, that Jesus Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world, and that all of what happened could not ultimately have happened any other way. Okay. So when we look at God's sovereign plan, then we wonder, is Judas just a pawn in all of this? Did he even have a choice? Was it really his fault that he betrayed Jesus and led the Pharisees to crucify him? And, and so we should back up and go to the Old Testament, just, to, just so you see what I mean, that all the way along, Judas's betrayal was discussed, it was talked about. In Psalm 41.9, it says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared meals with me has turned against me. So that's viewed as a prophecy of the Messiah and of Judas. And that Judas would turn against him, even though he had shared meals with him. And then in John chapter 6, verse 68 to 61, uh, Simon Peter asked this question. And he says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus replied to them, didn't I choose you, the twelve, yet... One of you is the devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve because he was going to betray him. So long before we're even into Passion Week, Jesus is talking about the fact that Judas will betray him, that one of you is a devil. And then, on the evening of the Last Supper in John 13:27, Jesus says to Judas, what you are going to do, do it in a hurry. It's actually interesting that, that at the Last Supper, Jesus asks the question or, or, or makes a statement that one of you will betray me. And they all say, is it me? Is it I? It's not going to be me, right? And Judas is one of them that, that actually gets up and says, is it I? Now, he has already gone to the chief priest by this point, And he's already decided what he's going to do. He's a, He's received money for betraying Jesus. So for him to ask that, I mean, it's, it seems as though he's just parroting what the other disciples are saying and pretending like he doesn't know. But what's fascinating to me about that whole circumstance is that when when all of the disciples looked around the room at one another, nobody suspected Judas. They would suspect themselves, maybe, even before they suspected Judas. So he hid that very well. In Luke 22, 48-50, Jesus said unto him, Judas, will you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And that's, so Jesus already knew what was happening, Judas, why Judas was there. Um, all of this was planned. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, uh, Peter gives an explanation to the rest of the apostles about what's happening, those who are gathered in that room. He says, those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of the names was about 120 and said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus for he was numbered with us and obtained a part of this ministry so it's clear there that peter viewed judas's betrayal not just as a solitary act of one man who who went rogue and, and went against the plan and did the wrong thing but as a part of god's sovereign plan that david had actually prophesied that that would happen and this was Ultimately, Scripture being fulfilled, and so was was there any ever any time that Judas could have, or could he have freely chosen not to? And and this is the the amazing thing about um, human beings with frail and fragile minds trying to approach the Word of God that is perfect, that reveals the mind of of God, who is he is per, he is. Uh, um, What's the word that there's no end? There's not not no end, but infinite. Okay, he's infinite. How do we understand an all knowing, omniscient God who, who is not bound by time? And it is really difficult for us. And so, what happens sometimes is I think we come to the word sovereignty and the idea of sovereignty, and we come to it in a way that only human beings can understand. Well, how can I, as a human being, be sovereign over anything? The only way I, I could possibly try to be sovereign is to be in absolute, complete control over all of those things, as though they were Lego pieces that I was, you know, moving along, and and this one did this only because I raised its arm, and this one did this only because I threw it at the wall. Like, but it's it's all about like I'm forcing it to move, and that's how these Lego pieces are now sovereign. That's how I I exert my sovereignty over the Lego pieces. But it's really difficult for us to understand how a God who is not like us, who is not bound by time like we are, and not bound by a lack of knowledge like we are, how he exerts sovereignty over his creation. This is one of the great mysteries of our faith, and I think it's one of the mysteries that we will never come to an end of, we'll never fully understand, because we will never be infinite. We'll never be omniscient like God is. But having said that, I, I think that there's a, an introduction that is written in um, J.I. Packer's uh, Knowledge of the Holy. Is that what it's called? Stink, I didn't even write it down. Um, but it's, a, it's an amazing book, <laughs> The Knowledge of God. Yeah. Uh, so Packer wrote this awesome book, and the, the preface to the book, he begins with an illustration that John McKay once used, and he says... Um, There are two kinds of Christians, and we can picture these things by imagining a balcony of a Spanish house that we were there watching travelers go by on the road. And so we have the balconeers who are above, and they can overhear the travelers talk and chat, and they may comment critically on the way that the travelers walk, or they may discuss questions about the road, or if it can exist, or whether it will lead anywhere, what might be seen from different angles along it, and so forth. But they are onlookers, and their problems are theoretical only. The travelers, by contrast, face problems which, though they have their theoretical angle, are essentially practical, problems of which way to go and how do I make it. The problems which call not merely for comprehension, but for decision and action too. So you've got the picture, you've got balconeers who are overlooking a crowded intersection and watching as people come, and, and they can comment and question, and they can maybe see beyond what these people can see, but they're not involved in the, the decision-making that's happening in, in each of those people's minds. And then you also have the travelers who don't see as far off, but what they know is to, right now, they have to deserve, make a decision to swerve le- right or to swerve left to avoid the oncoming traffic. Right, they're making decisions and actions. And, and these two groups of people, this, this, these two ideas might help us to illustrate the way we can come to the Bible and the way we can think about theology. We can think about theology as a balconeer, that we are above it all, and we are trying to figure out how these pieces might f- fit together. And when we are stressing... When we're thinking about all of theology through the, the view of the providence and the sovereignty of God, then we are acting more as these balconiers. It's not a wrong thing to do. It's just recognize that at that point, our perspective is we're trying to sit above it all and trying to explain what's happening without thinking about the real-world decisions that individuals are making. Okay. Whereas as a travel, traveler, we can come to the Bible and we can say, this is what God tells me to do. I need to do this. I need to do this. And so if we look at the question of was Judas capable of being saved as a balconeer, we can say, well, ultimately, no. Ultimately, God's plan was this. And ultimately, all these things were going to work out the way that they did. But if we were to, to come from it as a traveler and say, we're Judas, was Judas making real decisions? to disobey christ was he making real decisions to sin against god yes absolutely he was he was he recognized he was after the fact in fact it feels like he kind of did before and um, rather than repenting he went out and killed himself in kind of a worldly type of remorse and so he recognized his sinfulness and i don't think any of what the the sermons in Acts 1, the message in Acts 1, or in Acts 2, I don't think no other part of the Bible would lead us to believe that it's possible that Judas was not guilty, that he was not culpable for his decisions. Okay, So that's helpful for us, because we might be tempted to think, you know what, I did this thing, but I guess it must have been part of God's sovereign plan, or, or you know, I felt like I had to. Um, we don't, as human beings, we don't get to get away with that. Now, the question is, can God use poor decisions we make just like he used the poor decisions that Judas made to ultimately lead to salvation of all of humanity or all those who trust in him? Yeah, sure, God can, God can use our poor decisions ultimately for good. But that does, does that make our bad decisions, our decisions to sin, right? Absolutely not. Are we morally responsible Will we be held accountable for those decisions? Absolutely yes. God has not designed us as robots who have no ability to make free will decisions. And so as a balconer, we can, we can look at the whole thing and say, yeah, I guess this was the course of my life, it, that, that the course of my life fit into God's sovereign plan, but we can never use that as an excuse of why we chose to sin at any given moment. Okay? Does that make some sense? We can't say the devil made me do it. That's that's absolutely true, right? And and again, um, in I think it's Luke, but it, it talks about that the devil entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot. And you might think like, oh, see, the devil was controlling him. That's actually Judas allowed that to happen. He was already going down this path, and and Judas allowed it he, even back. Um, when the ointment was poured out on Jesus' head, Judas is the one that's upset about it. Why? Because he's a thief, but he's already this, this person who's, who's obsessed with money and greed and himself. Right? And so, yeah, you can't use the excuse to the devil maybe do it. Good. Any other thoughts or comments before we move on? Because the next question is very similar. The next question is if Pilate's. Oh, sorry, I missed it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. And, and clearly, it's not our uh, maybe desire as a young person or our upbringing that's going to make that final decision of whether we trust Christ or not. Um, I think, like, you know, you think about the prodigal son, and the, the emphasis is always on the one who did all the bad things, that he came back and repented. That's glorious that that's possible. But I think we should also remember that, that both sons were lost, Um, Both needed salvation, and only one truly came back and was saved. Uh, And and that's like, you know, if you grow up in a religious home, you look at the son who stayed home, but still didn't repent, still didn't seek uh, forgiveness, and was still lost. Right. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about what you've just heard, or are interested in the ministry of Maple City, please visit our website at maplecitybaptistchurch.com.